0: Okay, well, uh, good evening. Um, Welcome to this, the uh, session of the fifth LSE Literary uh, Festival. Um, My name is uh, Gareth Jones. I'm a reader in the uh, Department of Geography here at LSE, uh, and I'll be uh, chairing uh, this uh, panel. Um, The panel is entitled Branching Out Mapping Human Imagination, Exploration, and Innovation, and is in innovation, sorry. And, uh, and is sponsored by um, the Department of Geography uh, here at uh, the LSE. Um, we've got uh, two speakers. Um, each will speak for around sort of 15 minutes and consecutively. Um, and then we will open uh, the floor to uh, questions and answers. And there will be some microphones uh, available uh, for people want to make their points uh, then. Um, We hope, I hope, um, that um, the panel will at the very least be podcast and if the technology stands up, um, videocast and be available uh, on the LSE websites um, at a uh, future time. Um, I should ask you... um, to turn any mobile phones to silent. There used to be a day when you were asked to turn them off. Um, now, so that you can Twitter and tweet and things like that, um, then um, silent is sufficient. I don't want your thumbs to be bored uh, for the next uh, two hours or so. So, um, I introduce um, the two speakers. Professor Jerry Broughton is, is going to speak first. Now, he's Professor of, uh, of Renaissance Studies at uh, Queen Mary, uh, University of London. Um, he's a leading expert on the history of maps and in, of Renaissance cartography. Um, he had a, a book uh, published uh, five, six years ago on uh, the sale of the late King Charles I's uh, uh, goods. Uh, and which won, or shortlisted, I'm sorry, for the Samuel Johnson Prize. I'm sure it should have won. (laughs) Um, I'm sure he at least thinks that. Um, He's uh, appeared uh, on numerous occasions on on BBC uh, Four uh, for his series uh, Maps, Power, Plunder and Possession. Uh, And his latest book, uh, which uh, I have had the pleasure of, uh, of looking through and copies will be and are available uh, outside after uh, this session is A History of the World uh, in 12 Maps. Uh, Mike Parker is uh, author of uh, a best-selling uh, book uh, The Map Addict uh, and is writer and presenter on BBC Radio 4 uh, in the series On the Map. Um, he's currently working uh, I believe, on, on a, a book called The Story of Britain uh, in Roadmaps, uh, which will be published uh, sometime later this year. That's correct. Um, without further ado, then, I'll pass over to Gerry uh, Broughton and uh, begin uh, the presentation. Thank you.
1: Thank you. <coughs> Have I got a PowerPoint somewhere? Oh, it's a keyboard. (coughs) There it is. There's a PowerPoint. Um, I guess that what we're going to do, Mike and I know each other pretty well, we've done these kind of events before, and so what I think we're going to be doing (laughs) is that we're going to go from the very global to the very local. Um, Because I guess what I've done with this book, uh, History of the World in 12 Maps, as as Mike said, how are you going to get through that in 10 or 15 minutes? Um, So I'm just going to do about 2,500 years of the history of cartography in 15 minutes. So this is speed mapping, as it were. (laughs) Um, So I really want to talk about the global, um, the international, and and the notion of the world, the concept of the mapping of the world, um, and what that means for the history of cartography. Um, And then I'm going to pass over to Mike, because Mike's work is much more distinguished by his interest in the local, um so i think what we'd like to then do is open it up and really have a discussion that moves across the two both in terms of i guess my responses to the global mics to the local but then also how they connect (coughs) because i think that one of i guess the stories that we're going to be talking about is as i'm sure many of you will know that the map is never a transparent neutral representation of the reality that it seeks to represent maps always have an agenda And I think we'll be saying that in different ways, at the local level, as well as at the global level. Um, And I think that that's really what drove me to write this book. I originally did did my PhD thesis on maps back in 1997. I was actually working in an English department. And I was interested in the whole idea about the rhetoric of mapping within literature, within drama. And then somebody said to me, why don't you stop doing that, just do the maps? Mapping is a very interesting field because it doesn't exclusively come out of geography. So I'm trained in literary studies. Many people who work in this area are trained in classics, in anthropology, in archaeology, um, as well as in geography. So cartography is a sort of interesting subset um, field in its own right. Um, And in many ways there are sort of tensions with geography and what geographers do. And I still think, I guess there's now been a recent explosion of interest in maps, but I still think it's um, a subject in need of a discipline. It's a real problem in terms of keeping this area of study going. So I guess this book was really a contribution to that attempt to say, how might we tell history through mapping and through space? As many of you will know, within the current humanities, that there, we're going through what's called a spatial turn, an interest precisely in how you undertake... Cultural analysis uh, and social science analysis um, through a representation of space—lived space, mental space, imagined space—and also the mapping of space. And I'm going to end up at the end talking a little bit about um, the. <laughs> I'm going to end up talking about digital <coughs> mapping of space. So what I want to do is quickly run through. Start back in. Uh, <laughs> start back in about 700 BC. Um, and I really want to take you through um, several versions of how different moments in history and different cultures have mapped the world how they've responded to an understanding of what the world is and how they've mapped it accordingly and what I was interested in throughout the book I mean of course some people will say it's a rather sort of uh, conceited title you can't tell the history of the world in 12 maps and indeed you can't but my argument was to say how do different cultures have what we would call worldviews? If we think about a worldview, we think about a philosophical outlook. What is your worldview? Where do you speak from? It's a certain philosophical ideal. But it comes with a concept of world, an idea of the world, a terrestrial concept of the world as an earth. So what I was interested in is saying, how do different cultures understand themselves through the artefact of a map. So I start with this one. The earliest known map of the whole Earth. This is from 700 BC. It's known as the Babylonian world map. It's on clay. It's completely, I want to say to you, indecipherable to us. This is not what we expect a map to look like. But this is the beginning of a tradition of whole Earth mapping. 700 BC, the Babylonians mapping the world. Now I'm going to come back to it in a second. So we're 700 BC and I want to go obviously all the way to Google. We're going to end up having some kind of conversation about Google. Where more than two people who talk about the history of maps meet, there they shall invoke the name of Google. (laughs) It is going to happen, whether we like it or not. So 2013. So that is my span from 700 BC to 2013. The current version of what whole earth mapping looks like. Now I would suggest that both that one and the Babylonian world map don't look what we would imagine maps to look like. So I'm interested also in the different forms of medium, the way in which we've gone from clay um, into papyrus, into paper, um, into lithography, into print, and finally into pixels that mapping has always endured through those different shifts in terms of media and different kind of cultures. So that's my range. So in about the next nine minutes, I'm going to fill in all the rest in between 700 BC and 2013. But that, as I say, is the range. And again, I want to start by saying, yes, of course, these are, as it were, maps. They are kinds of maps. And interestingly, they have things in common. I'll come back to that in a minute. So the Babylonian world map, look at that hole in the middle. So we believe that this is a hole that was actually made in this piece of clay to create a compass that basically constructed a flat round earth. And from there, you work outwards. So you have a centre. And this is what I call egocentric mapping. You know that All historical cultures, of course, place themselves at the centre of the map. And of course, we might say, well, now that doesn't really happen anymore with world maps online. But of course, it does. Because if you go onto Google Earth, it understands exactly where you are on the planet, and it tilts you and orientates you accordingly so that you are still at the center of that world. So if we were now in California, this globe would tilt round and focus you on the west coast of the states. So implicitly, online mapping is still, as it were, egocentric in terms of positioning us in a certain place. And, of course, what it does is, look at that image. This is this complete conceit of the Earth floating. Beautiful, precious, blue Earth in black, deep space. The whole Earth. And, in a way, the Babylonian map is, again, doing something quite similar. Structuring a whole Earth, a circular Earth, outside which, I'm going to talk in a minute, are dangerous, problematic, liminal spaces. So I think there are some connections between the two maps, some enduring elements of mapping. It'll be interesting to see what Mike has to say about notions of enduring local forms of mapping, you know, what unites all forms of local mapping. So I just want to show you to try and decode this map, the Babylonian map. So there you have it again on the right, and here you have it on the left broken down into a diagram. So as you can see, um, the centre, Babylon, Babel, and what you can start to see is... There's the Euphrates, um, the bitter ocean, an encircling sea which runs all the way down. This is a flat earth, but it's a circular earth, outside which these broken off triangulated areas which are basically um, where, as it were, monstrosity lies, formless, chaotic mass beyond which you don't want to go. So this is Babylon. Babylon is the world. The world is Babylon. It's that worldview version, and that's what the map says. You need go nowhere further than this kind of space. And it's so therefore beginning to look like a map. It's beginning to abstract reality. It's beginning to use signs, symbols, lines, to break down the world, as it were, beyond where where we are, beyond the horizon. And that's what the Babylonian map does. And of course, similarly, Google Earth is doing something not dissimilar. Because you can see here that what you can do, I'm sure many of you know, is look at how that uh, political geography is being etched onto the surface of the map. You can switch it off if you want. Of course, Google enables you to do that. So that's where I start. That's your range. Now, of course, if you're trying to fill in the 2,500 years in between, you always go to the Greeks. So let's go to the Greeks. So here's Ptolemy. So this is Ptolemy. Ptolemy, the father of modern geography. Ptolemy is working in Alexandria, so we're here, <laughs> where we are, in 150 AD. <laughs> Ptolemy is a for, of Greek heritage, working in Alexandria in, in the library in 150 AD, and posits really the first coherent notion of a projection, a map projection, which says you can use geometry and mathematics to construct a grid a graticule effectively of what we would see as latitude and longitude which constructs a space that is recognisable to us, so is a later copy this is a late 13th century Byzantine copy rather wonderfully and enigmatically Ptolemy writes his book The Geography in 150 AD we do not know categorically whether we, re- whether we drew maps to accompany it so I love the fact that the father of geography and of modern map making actually never seems to draw map so these are later Byzantine copies you can see what he's trying to do, to construct this world. It's a Greco-Roman Mediterranean-focused world called the ecumene, ecumene being the great Greek living space, beyond which is just terra incognita. Look at the way in which... He's pretty good, actually, for 150 AD. This is a sort of projection of Ptolemy's principles um, from 150 AD. Pretty good. I mean, obviously, the Indian Ocean is looking a bit like a sort of large... Car park because it's <laughs> completely, so and, and sub Saharan Africa has basically taken over everything. You'd so, you know, there is this notion that basically all of sub Saharan Africa is just, just c- carries on. This is all just land. Um, but Ptolemy's not very interested because, in terms of sort of certain Greco Roman notions about temperate and intemperate zones, he's not really interested. He's not really interested in that. But by 150 AD, you have the basic mathematical principles which are set out to establish a graticule, which later Renaissance cartographers will pick up when this text comes back into into vision in the late 14th, early 15th century. So you'd think that we're on our way, and I guess part of what we're going to be saying throughout the rest of this, and I'm sure Mike will be giving a version of this, is that much of the notion of the post-Enlightenment argument about transparent, objective, ordnance survey-style maps is a very, ve- very recent development. If we're going right back to 700 BC, it's only relatively recently that we've begun to valorize the idea of the accurate map which gets us from A to B. Now, you'd think that we're on the way here in 150 AD, but then what happens? This happens. Right? the tradition of mapping, because Ptolemy's work is to some extent lost, well it's not lost, what happens is it goes east, and of course that's what all Western scholars say, it gets lost. That means it goes east. <laughs> and we're still trying, and I'm working on research projects at the moment now, to try and talk about European, Islamic, and Arabic exchanges of cartography from the late medieval period. Because people just say, Ptolemy gets lost for a thousand years. It doesn't, it goes to places like Baghdad. Um... And, of course, it goes into an Islamic context which people just completely lose touch with. And a lot of work is now being done on an attempt to try and recover what's going on in this period. But this is 1086, and this is uh, an Islamic mapmaker, Ibn Halkul, um again from modern-day Iran. And what I want to show you is just different versions of worlds which now, having seen a world with a northern orientation... You've gone to a world with a southern orientation. So now, as it were, sub-Saharan Africa is at the top. And most Islamic maps from this period are orientated in this way with south at the top. Because all the cultures which have converted to Islam are basically, as it were, we would understand them being north of Mecca. So what they're doing is, of course, not using Qibla maps. Kibla Q- uh, Q- is a way of understanding where you are and how you orientate yourself in relation to Mecca. It's a different tradition. These are world maps which are basically saying we look up, upwards as it were, towards Mecca, which is how we orientate ourselves. So the Islamic tradition puts south at the top, not consistently, but the majority of Islamic maps around this period put south at the top. We can come back to that and talk about it in a bit later. <coughs> What then happens two hundred years later in the Christian tradition is it gets turned another ninety degrees, and now you've got east at the top. <laughs> so now, now, you've got Britain is down here. Okay, this is the Mediterranean, and this is North Africa going down, getting increasingly monstrous, monstrous. You know, from people who are sort of scared of apples, to very, very monstrous people who yeah, have have feet for umbrellas, terrible, thing, terrible, thing, and the very helpfully labelled Red Sea because it's red. Um, and actually what this is about is putting east at the top because it's difficult to see but here is Christ and at the centre of the map here is Jerusalem so this is a theological map rather like the Islamic map I've just shown you but its orientation is of course different because it sees all theological time and space as emanating from Eden which is there that's the Garden of Eden there's Christ, outside time and space outside the frame of the map so this is a story that moves from the top, from east, from the beginning of time down westwards so it's a map as much about time as about space and again, I think what we're going to be saying is that that is logically consistent with that worldview. that map works for people in Hereford in 1300, it's not a map about travelling and getting from A to B because they're not interested in that They're interested in a world view which is theologically consistent with Christianity. And that leads to a map that, for very specific reasons, is oriented with east at the top. And this is a Korean map from 1402, which looks strikingly right to us, because it's got north at the top. But hopefully by now you're getting the point that that decision to put north at the top is completely arbitrary. Historians of cartography can still not answer why North is privileged and is put at the top of the map. It happens by the high renaissance. We don't know why it happens. And here is a Korean map, which is basically, as you can tell, indebted to China, (laughs) which looms rather large on the map. I mean, egocentric mapping beyond belief. This is the Korean peninsula, also quite large, I think you'll agree, and there is Japan. (laughs) (laughs) And to put it in context, there is Europe. (laughs) But quite stunning, 1402, a map from Korea using Chinese mapping methods, which actually is showing Europe, and rather wonderfully um, in the uh, transcription, talks about (coughs) Alemania, Germany, in 1402, a map from Korea, I think it's extraordinary, and shows a circumnavigable Southern Africa, which is nothing that's being shown on European maps for another hundred years. Now, the orientation is with north at the top because, obviously, within Chinese imperial ideology, the argument is that the emperor looks down south and, therefore, the subjects look up northwards in a position of subjection. So, extraordinarily, just by chance, that's the reason it looks strikingly modern to us. And I want to say that that's a bit of a conceit but still an extraordinary map which people don't usually talk about within the history of cartography so that's 1402 now of course this is famous 1569 Mercator's world map and I'm just going to quickly shoot through this because I'm sure we'll come back to it but this is of course the most famous uh, western European projection Mercator's projection which distorts north and south as you can see um, what's going on is a kind of stretching of the map here Because what Mercator is interested in is travel and trade east to west. We have a northern orientation, and that's simply because by the close of the Renaissance, every idiot knows that there's no point going up there or going there. You need to be going that way and that way, because that's where trade, empire, commerce works. And, you know, nobody points out, you know, Mercator's showing it happening. Look at the ships that are working along this band so what he constructs is a projection which is accurate basically either side of the, of the tropics either side of the equator it doesn't matter that look this extraordinary distortion of the north and south poles this is all land This is, really, this is all land it's ridiculous nobody points out and you know clearly not much knowledge of North, north America because there's an enormous cartouche explaining <laughs> mathematics because Mercator hasn't quite worked that out um, In contrast, this is the Peters Projection map, which is 1973, and Arno Peters famously taking uh, umbrage at Mercator's Projection. He says Mercator's wrong and evil, and he's a terrible Eurocentric mapmaker because he puts Europe at the centre of his map. Can anybody please show me how Europe is at the centre of that map? Um, So I'm interested in that debate because what happens is that Peters comes along and says, I'm a socialist historian who retrains as a geographer. I want to produce a map which gives equality to within the language of the nineteen seventies he talks about the the third world and the developing world. And of course that for him is particularly sub Saharan Africa and it's South it's South Latin America. So you get this what we see again as sort of bizarre distortion because he uses simply a different projection, which what do you know is called the equal area projection because it's a projection which simply constructs a rectangular map of the world using equal area of landmass. All that Mercator does is he chooses something called conformality. He wants to make sure that the angles are correct, i.e. if you're sailing from Lisbon to Brazil, because you're trading, because that's what informs this map. That's what you need. You don't need to have equal area, it's just a different projection. And the only problem I have with Peter's is Peter says, my projection is superior. Nonsense. You cannot project the globe onto a flat plane surface. And they're basically all implicitly conceiving <coughs> that. So in a way, that's where we ended, of course, until we had the online digital revolution, which gave us beautiful maps like this. <laughs> right? um, and I'm sure we're going to come on to it. And I'm just <coughs> showing you this yet the way in which now the online map, of course, is driven by... I, I, I love I doing this, you know. Basically, the, the, the shape of that map. Again, just like you do with the Hereford of Monday, you'd say, what is it in the borders about Christianity and what's it telling you? Well, what's going on with this map? Well, you know, what's in the borders? Online advertising, geolocalisation of sales points, search for locations, link to partner websites. The online mapping, of course, is being driven, as we know, um, by those commercial imperatives. Now... Okay, fine, we can talk about that, and I don't have a problem with it. But might we be able to do something much more exciting with online digital mapping? So, I'm going to end with this, because I think we can. I'm currently involved with uh, a company called Factum Arte. They're uh, based in Madrid. Um, they're a, a, an artist workshop. And we're proposing to make a 40 by 80 metre three-dimensional relief map of the world and put it on an island in Venice for the next Biennale. And it's going to look like that. And it's going to be the biggest world in the world. Um, and in fact, we see that as a map. And we're using the same kind of digital technology as these kind of maps, as the Google Maps. Right? But what we are thinking is, this is an object of wonder, we've lost this sense of the idealised utopian possibilities of mapping. Many of the maps I've just been showing you about people dreaming about transcending the world as we understand it to try and hope of a better version of that world. And so we are deliberately doing something utterly crazy and utopian. And it's going to be three-dimensional. That is what it's going to look like up close. You're looking at a world without water that's digitally routed, and you're seeing you're standing basically on south america so you're looking up towards europe and that is what the atlantic looks like if you scale up the islands they're like enormous needles which come rising out of the earth And what we want to do is basically make that world without water and then flood it flood it up to current sea levels and then we're better than in venice <laughs> Flood the whole thing, and you know that sense in which that mo- the last moment on that world map that you see the final point of Everest disappear. You know that it seems to me is much more powerful. Sorry, than oh, sorry, Michael. I'm going to say- um, but that's much more powerful than the Google image that I started showing you. So what I'm interested in, and perhaps where we might go with this, is to talk about the way in which the digital online revolution is, allows us some possibilities of doing extraordinary things with maps. Um, and I've gone very global with it, but Mike's now going to go a bit more local, and we're going to meet somewhere in the middle. So let's see how <laughs> we go. So over to
2: Mike. Ooh. Thank you, Terry. Thank you, that's brilliant. Um, yes, as Jerry says, I'm going to sort of bring it back to this island, mainly. I'm going to travel abroad a bit as well, but um, I, I want to continue the themes, really, of there being an absolutely uh, limitless amount of ways you can, you can build emphasis and bias into mapping. There is no such thing as an unbiased map. It cannot and does not exist. Uh, but even looking at, at this island, I'm going back to 1360 here. This is a, a map called the Goff map. Now, as you saw in, in Jerry's presentation with the, uh, the Hereford map of Monday of, of slightly earlier, but pretty much the same time, East is at the top here. So if you imagine the island just tilted around. So you can see a recognisable shape. here. You can see East Anglia, the South East. Here's London. Going down here to Cornwall, uh, Wales. Now, um, what, I want to show, what I want to say about that, really, is, is the, the idea of emphasis. And there's no intended emphasis here, but there is emphasis nonetheless. Because what we have, of course, is a very, very much better mapped south and east of England. The further south and east you go, the more clear, the more recognisable the map becomes. The further west and north you get, uh, it all goes a, a little bit pear-shaped. So, I mean, Wales is just, where I live, is just this kind of lumpy, kind of cancerous growth on the side of, the side of England. <laughs> And as for Scotland, I mean, um, you know, obviously no idea whatsoever, the cartographers of, of the goth map. There is actually one of those magical um, little um, annotations in the middle of Scotland saying, here dwell wolves." The, the, the here be dragons one, which is one of the great, uh, great old cliches of, of map making, though sadly no one's ever found the map saying here be dragons. There is one which, which does suggest a name a little bit similar, which is a tribe in Indonesia, but uh, uh, the, the here be dragons thing, I'm afraid, is a myth. But here, be, here dwell wolves is indeed there. So um, this idea of emphasis, you know, but we are getting the shape of, of the country quite, quite successfully. Oh God, what did I do? What is Sorry. Technology baffles idiot. Um, so moving it slightly forward here, moving it forward 50 years, 1410, this is a map called the Evesham map simply because it was presented to the Abbey of Evesham in, in Worcestershire. And this, like the Hereford map that you saw earlier, is the um, uh, map of Mundi, i.e. With the, with the Red Sea again, again, you know, handily bright red, just in case you could miss it. The Mediterranean, at the centre of things, I mean, that's what the name of the sea means, Mare Mediterranea, the sea at the centre of the earth. That's how it was thought of, and, and, and that's why you'll find it at the centre of me- much Western mapping. And here we see the islands of Britain off the coast here to, to the north. Um, now, what I want to show you about this, about emphasis, is that this, this is Wales, a separate island. This is Scotland, a separate island. We're going up into the Orkneys, the Shetlands and the Faroes up here. Ireland uh, off there. So he's, so the, the, the mysterious cartographer of the Eastern map in 1410... And, I mean, as you saw on the goth map, the shape of Britain was starting to be known quite accurately. You know, there were bits. And they've given up on that now. There's no attempt whatsoever. This, this sort of teardrop-shaped England and these you know, featureless lumps of Wales <laughs> and Scotland uh, completely separated, um, despite the fact that people did know, the real, you know something of the real geography. So what's going on here? Well, it's a political map, of course, like they so often are. Um, 1410, when this was made was a time when the English crown was fighting on two fronts, against the Welsh and against the Scottish. It was the, the Welsh Wars of Doer. Uh, the King of Scotland had been, in, in the, the, had been imprisoned by the English uh, forces for 18 years. So big battles going on to the west and to the north. And so this is, as Peter Barber, the, the head of maps at the British Library, called it, he called this the UKIP map of the world, <laughs> because what we have is a huge great England going from the gates of the Mediterranean there, from Gibraltar up to the Arctic. A huge England, Wales has got to be been pushed off, it's dominant, it's full of detail, full of interesting places, and everywhere else can kind of go hang. So um, those sort of ideas have been around an awful long time. Bringing it right up to date now, when we talk about emphasis, I'll show you a map that, was, uh, that caused a lot of controversy just eight years ago. The BBC weather map. <laughs> you remember this? This controversy erupted in 2005 when the BBC uh, changed their weather map uh, and changed it to a tilt. Instead of being a flat-on, just sort of straight projection of the British Isles, they tilted it. And this was the original one. I'm sorry about the quality of the thing. It's the best one I could find. Uh, and there were, of course, huge, huge ruckuses in Scotland, as you can <laughs> probably imagine. 4,000 complaints within days um, <laughs> when this map was, was used. There were questions raised in, in the Parliament at Westminster and the Parliament in, in Edinburgh. And, of course, the BBC had very little choice except to, uh, to, to back down. Now, you might think, ha-ha, well, you know, the Daft Scots being a bit prickly again. But if we take exactly the same tilt and do it the other way around, so do it from the north, this is what the weather map <laughs> <laughs> would look like. And I'll tell you what, I would wager that you lot down here have had something to say about that, if they'd come up with that. So, as I say, the BBC, rather graciously, they used their map for just a couple of weeks, uh, then had to back down and and re-tilt it. And uh, the the Scottish Member of Parliament, uh, Pete Wishart, the SNP MP, he said that uh, Scotland requires accurate weather forecasts, and I'm confident this can be secured now that we have regained our rightful size. And this is the map that they now use today. But has... Scotland regained its rightful size. If we overlay the map of the BBC News now onto, you know, using the south coast as a baseline and we place it onto a, a sort of flat projection of, the, of Britain, uh-huh. you can see, so this is, you know, all the way from there, you can see, no, in fact, still, the tilt still emphasises the south of England at the expense of the north of Scotland. So, um, <coughs> you can see how even something as inane, as, as bland as a weather map, can actually end up causing huge amounts of offence. I did particularly like the, the reaction of one blogger in Scotland to this whole thing, who produced this idea of a weather map, which uh, <laughs> I particularly loved. Uh, again, I suspect that might cause a few raised eyebrows if they ever got round to using it. But that's very much in the tradition of this idea of turning maps upside down. I mean, there is no such thing as an upside down map, because as Jerry has just shown you, you know, any any direction can be the top, it could be south, it could be north, it can be east. Um, there's not been a tradition of westerly ones, has there? No, there's no reason nice for that. Um, but, you know, the, 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 the idea that the, 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 there is a certain way round uh, to a map is, of course, inherent rubbish. We just, it's what we're used to. Um, but even when the map is sort of straight on, uh, there is still a bias in it. Um, oh, no, I'll just, just mention that one. Cause what, that, that map that uh, the the blogger produced, did remind me, when I saw it, it reminded me of something, and it was this one, it was a, the frontispiece of Robert Macfarlane's book, The Wild Places, where he's looking for the places in the British Isles that have still got a sense of wilderness and of wildness about them. So the map there, you can see why it'd be tilted from that angle, because it suddenly plays, it does completely change your perspective on where the country is. I mean, the Hebrides up here, off the west coast of Scotland, so used to being either in a box at the side um, or, or, you know, way, way out on the periphery, suddenly they become centre stage and they look, it just makes your perception of the whole geography of the country so so very different indeed. Uh, And you can see just by looking at the map what Robert McFarlane's intentions were uh, when he was, uh, you know, what you're going to get out of the book, you can see there from the frontispiece map. But as I said, even when a map is straight on, is as is as, you know, plain as the nose on your face, it can still contain huge bias. This next one is from a book that I've got at home, uh, an, a Reader's Digest Atlas of the British Isles from 1965. Uh, and this map, it's got loads of maps of the British Isles, all on this projection, and this map is entitled The Birthplaces of Notable People of the Past. And as you'll see, in 1965, according to the Reed's Digest, very few people of any worth whatsoever came from anywhere other than, the, the, than, well, England, for starters. I mean, very few from Scotland, hardly any from Ireland, and bugger all from Wales as well.
3: Um, and, you know, this
2: is, this is how bias can just, even on the plainest of maps, how bias can instil itself on a map. I mean, uh, uh, but what is interesting, I mean, you know, from a Welsh point of view, uh, the only people that are, that are in notable-born people from Wales. Of course, nobody in a Welsh context. Nobody's made it, you know, great writers, great musicians, great, you know, artists or whatever. It's just people who've made it big in, in the British Empire. It's Lloyd George, it's T.E. Lawrence of Arabia, and H.M. Stanley, uh, you know, Dr. Livingstone, I presume. They're the only kind of people presumed. So, bias can show itself in so very, very many ways. Um, sometimes it's really, really obvious what they're trying to do. I mean, this is a 1960 map from the National Geographic... Uh, produced in America, and this was a time when you know the Cold War was at its height, and the American government were trying desperately to ramp up defence spending, to ramp up yet more spending on, on military, on the military. The public at home were very sceptical. This was the National Geographic's contribution to the debate to show them just how vulnerable you know Europe was from this big stain, this big red commie stain that was spreading its way. And look, just this little corridor of other countries before, it was, before the whole of um, Western Europe was engulfed. It's like a lava flow, that mapping. It looks, you know, and by inclination, America's just over there. And it did the job. You know, it, it, this map and all the kind of propaganda of the age of 1960 did the job of persuading the Americans to spend an awful lot more on their, um, on their military. Um, you know, that is such an explicitly biased map. But, as I said, it did its job. Now, the Cold War was an interesting time for how maps, um, the emphasis on maps, uh, all, the, all the things that weren't on maps. I mean, they were full. The Cold War was an era of many, many cartographic porkies, barefaced lies. Uh, our own Dear Ordnance Survey maps, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't, you know, absolutely faithful lies of the land. This was the Ordnance Survey map It was part of Warwickshire that you got in the 1980s. This is from my own collection. Uh, it's very near where my grandparents lived. I used to go and visit We used to go up here to this beauty spot at uh, Burton Dasset on the, on the, on the Burton Dasset Hills. And look down, there's this bloody great big ammunition depot here, as you can see on the, the more late map. But the Ordnance Survey kept, from the 1920s, kept more and more and more sites of military uh, significance off the map. And just replaced them with blank spaces. There were 5,000 by the time uh, this map was produced in the 1980s, so these blank spaces. the weird thing is, it was such a counterproductive policy. I mean, for starters, as I say, you can stand there, eat your sandwiches at the beauty spot and look down on this enormous, great uh, military base. You can see it for all the world. And, and even on the map, to my mind, in the middle of Warwickshire, cultivated, busy Warwickshire, this looks way more suspicious, uh, this big <laughs> blank, you know, an absolutely featureless blank in the middle of, of, of pastoral Warwickshire than it does than actually faithfully showing you what is there. And when these, when these were put on the map, which was only seven years ago now, um, the Ordnance Survey backed down rather graciously, it has to be said. Um, and when that was put back on the map, all these bases, these 5,000 bases, it wasn't because of any great kind of sense of glass It was just because all of the satellite mapping that we used to, Google and the like, you know, it made the policy an absolute joke, really. Uh, the daftest one of all of these, I think, was when, when I was a kid. We used to go and have a picnic there. And then we went to, every every year we'd go to stay at my auntie Molly's in Scarborough, in Yorkshire. And one of our favourite trips then, as a kid, was to go to the North Yorkshire Moors and see the big golf balls on the moors, which are part of a radar defence establishment, an early warning establishment. And the Ordnance Survey didn't have that on the map either. There was was a big blank. And here's a postcard, you could buy postcards (laughs) of the place. There were coach trips going there on a daily basis, you know, to have a good look at it. But it wasn't on the Ordnance Survey map. And the irony, of course, the biggest irony of all this was that the Soviet Union, the big enemy of the time, they had the maps. They had the maps of Britain with all the stuff on them that we didn't have on ours. Here is a a 1985 map of of the area around, uh, a Soviet Union map of the area around where the Olympics happened last year. This is all the Olympic Park as it was to become. That's Hackney in Cyrillic, uh, Leighton, uh, Newham I think that is down there, Uh, Hobarton where my sister lives. Um, so, you know, you can, you can the, the Soviet Union had all the bases, all the military establishments, all the depots uh, faithfully marked on their maps, whereas we didn't. Um, so that's really important. The point of all this, really, is we think what is on the map is really the most significant part of it. But actually, what's kept off the map can so often be the thing we should be um, uh, paying attention to, even when that's inadvertent. Um, this was the cover of a European Union statistics handbook from 2004. Notice anything a bit strange about it? Anywhere missing? Wales. Um, <laughs> for some reason, this, this handbook just forgot to put Wales on it. Obviously some computer somewhere just didn't quite cope with it and it drew a, you know, a graphic outline. Um, of course, a lot of the first of all at the time, in Wales and beyond, a lot of the British newspapers were saying, oh, perfect map. Let's bring it on. I'm sure Jeremy Clarkson had a few things to say. My favourite response, though, was the Daily Mail, uh, which ran a story about it and used this graphic, um, which sort of suggests that I, the Daily Mail, don't trust their readers enough to know where Wales is. Says a lot about the Daily Mail or its readers, or quite possibly both. But, of course, the, the, you know, what we emphasise on the map, you know, Jerry's talked a bit about the Mercator projection there, and there it is. The Mercator projection and the British Empire in pink or red, that became the great icon on every schoolroom wall. And Mercator projection was a predominant uh, projection of the Victorian age and the Edwardian age, but also it handily served the purpose and it made Canada look absolutely bloody enormous. Uh, And so the the spread of pink looked really, uh, really, really uh, huge. Um, But of course, that iconography can also be used against us. And I'll show you a 1940 um, Nazi piece of propaganda. um, Taking exactly the same mapping of the Mercator. You'll see there the shapes, the sizes are exactly the same. And using it against us to say, come on, hang on a minute. Who are the aggressors? Little tiny, teeny Germany? or the bloody great big British Empire. Now, it's it's pure propaganda. But my God, isn't it effective? It just shows what maps can do. It's a long tradition, using maps as propaganda. James Gilray in the Napoleonic Wars a, a, a famous British cartoonist uh, this was at the time and there we have you know, the shape of Britain as King George uh, with his red, red face uh, France worked out into the face of Napoleon himself and not to put too, this is called uh, the invasion of the bum boats it's not subtle <laughs> stuff, it's not subtle at all and quite basically it, this, is a, this is an illustration of King George crapping into the mouth of Napoleon <laughs> Uh, and you know for geographical pedants like myself I'm quite pleased to see he's actually got the you know the point of expulsion quite right that's Portsmouth sort of halfway down the south coast <laughs> the home of the fleet so you know even you know you could say the arsehole of England were you to be so unkind and you wouldn't be far wrong apologies to anybody from Portsmouth there goes the video <laughs> um, <Yep. laughs> so yes this use of shapes this use of outlines instant iconography of maps uh, just take it into the modern age now I'll, I'll wind up in a sec but um, looking at this, you know, how, how, how iconographic shapes of, of landmasses can be. And I want you to look at these four. These are all shapes that are very familiar to us uh, in this part of the world. We've got the, the, the map of Scotland, just the outline. The map of Wales. The map of Northern Ireland. And that's, only, that's not been in existence, that province, for uh, a century yet. And yet it's still, its shape is instantly recognisable. And the shape of London. And what I'm illustrating here is, is devolution, really. And how... In the, in the evolving, you know, settlement between the different parts of the UK. Um, you know, the fact that these are all extremely familiar to us. The shape of London, I mean, that's, that's land all around it. And especially if you have the, you know, the River Thames snaking through it as well. Uh, that's 30 years of Enders has got a lot to, thank for, a lot to uh, <laughs> do for that. But, I mean, that's such an instantly recognisable shape. It gets used in, in all kinds of ways, you know, in, in London mapping. Uh, Stephen Walter, the artist in the exhibition at the British Library a few years ago, he produced this phenomenal thing. Sort of slightly taking the pee out of London and its, and its obsession with itself because it was called the island, this, and it actually has uh, London and the shape of Greater London as an island. Here's a, here's a little detail of it. You can see the, the sound of Surrey and <laughs> Tolworth Port. And so, you know, this sort of idea being that the rest of the country is a sort of... Or rather, no, London has floated away from the rest of the country, um, which is often how it feels. But going back to those, those. Oh, sorry. Yes. And there's another, another one. Again, just you can do. There's so much good online mapping of London, and they just take the shape. This is a, one of my favourite instant information maps uh, of who, where people voted in the 2008 mayoral election. Uh, taking each of the best shares for each of these different parties: the BNP, the Christian part, Christian People's Party, the Liberals, Labour, Tories, Green, UKIP you can see where the concentration of votes are. I mean, it's just, you know, you can study this for ages and you can learn so much. You know, how much of a sort of mirror image the Labour and the Tory votes are and how much of a mirror image the Green Party and the BNP are. And, and how, you know, sort of the more right-wing you go, the more peripheral the voters tend to be, apart from, of course, this big hunk in Kensington and Chelsea of <laughs> <laughs> Tory voters in 2008 who, who wanted the re- congestion charge uh, repeal. <laughs> you will remember, that was one of Boris's uh, promises. But just going back to the shapes quickly, I said there it was about devolution. You know, those shapes, they cause us no sort of emotional hurdle. They're very easy to process. We've seen them a million times. But England on its own, doesn't look right at all. It looks like a limbless torso. Uh, and in many ways, that's exactly what it is. And I think just by looking at the map and how those different maps of Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland and London look against a map of England, we can sort of get a a sense there of where we're at at the moment in devolution. This, to me, reflects the problems that there are in England to try and work out where it's going, who it's for, what it is um, for itself rather than against the other countries of the UK. So, you know, maps can tell us such a huge amount. Um, You know, and even just as Iconography is a word I've used a lot of times now, but even as the, the power to be, to be overwhelmed by a map. Here we are in the Doge's Palace in Venice, and for every, any of you who've, who've never been there, it is quite an amazing thing, because this was the, part of the procession. Any visiting dignitary to the Doge would have to go through, they'd have to go up the Scala D'Oro, the golden staircase, which is just lavish in its, um, in its kind of you know, gilding, in its ornamentation, and wind their way through various, you know, amazing, amazing rooms. And just before they would have to wait here in the Sala del Mape. And quite explicit, this was the mapping of all the Venetian lands, the lands of the Venetian Republic. <clears throat> so you were standing there and this was meant to overwhelm you. This was meant to make you feel about two inches tall. And it worked a treat. That might look like a, the kind of thing we only did in, in the relics of history. But I'll show you some pictures now of the negotiations between Alex Salmond and David Cameron uh, in terms of, of working out the devolution settlement and the, the independence referendum. <laughs> referendum in Scotland. This map is there. This is the map that, David, that Alex Salmond makes David Cameron sit <laughs> and look at every time he goes to visit him in Edinburgh. He makes him pose for photographs in front of him as well. <laughs> This is the map of the 2011 Scottish Parliament elections when the SNP, in yellow, won all those first-past-the-post seats. And the Tories have got this little thin blue line along the border. Um, You know, I mean, that is just politics at its best. It is just, you know, it it is the doge's palace for our times. And I have to say, Alex Salmond makes a bloody good Venetian (laughs) doge. uh, uh, (laughs) Um, But yes, maps are everywhere. They are just absolutely everywhere. I mean, last year, as a sort of retort to that... The, the shape of the British Isles, or the shape of Britain, or the UK, and the flag was everywhere, of course. You know, this was in the window of John Lewis. I passed one day and took a photograph of it. Um, this is pottery dump. This is, again, in John Lewis. Course, John Lewis is the, the mothership of Middle England, of course. So, um, you know, you could... This is, this is by a designer called Emma Bridgewater, I think her name is. Uh, basically, she makes Kath Kidston look like Vivian Westwood. Um, <laughs> You know, and it 's just you know the, the shape of the country imbued with a flag. This, 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 this was all last year. there was this explosion of it uh, as part of the Jubilee and the Olympics, of course, you know the, the brick cat up in the corner. I remember reading some tweet from somebody which really tickled me actually. It said that uh, after going to the supermarket one day last summer and, and uh, I opened my fridge this afternoon, it looks like there's a BNP rally going on in there. <laughs> uh, and I think you can know So I'll finish it off now with a quotation from John. Steinbeck? Oh, no, I won't finish off with a quotation. Have we got it? No, we haven't. I'll read it to you instead then. Um, for weeks, I have studied maps, large scale. This was 1962, he wrote this, Travels with Charlie. For weeks, I have studied maps, large scale and small. But maps are not reality at all. They can be tyrants. I know people who are so immersed in road maps that they never see the countryside they pass through. And others who, having traced a route, are held to it as though held by flanged wheels to rails. So that is the point, I think, for, for both of us. Maps are not reality at all. They can be tyrants. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much to... to Wade, hold on, hold on. Uh, thank you very much to both of you. I've got to earn my uh, crust here for <laughs> 10 seconds or so. I mean, I, an, an amazing sort of tour de force from from both of the speakers and, and just noting down sort of key words uh, and a few questions and points of my own. But in uh, you know, 45 minutes and we've moved from utopias, in and out of utopias, uh, maps and otherwise at least a couple of times, um, notions of power and mapping, uh, through trade and the motives for trade, or the motives through war, the motives through ego. I'm reminded, I can't remember which uh, Chinese emperor uh, it was in the 3rd or the 4th century, who, wherever he moved through the Chinese Empire, or as, as was then, uh, and would spend the night, would have his cartographers redo the whole map of the empire from that spot. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, And then two or three weeks later, he'd move somewhere else, and the whole place would have to be remapped again, which had to sort of... Know, egocentric uh, uh, example I, I thought was great. Um, but uh, and we've had Venice twice, it's a long time I think since I've, uh, the, both talks, long time since I've had Venice in, in, a, in any talk um, I, I can think of and it's uh, uh, sort of interesting there, sort of Italo, Calvino, kind of invisible cities and so mm-hmm. forth, uh, uh, ideas there about the imagination and the utopia um, a, a number of times and Calvino had a number of interesting uh, sort of metaphorical things to say about maps and data uh, and power uh, there, um, I think there should be kind of questions around bias um, and how and who sees bias and from what direction uh, and who 's affected uh, by uh, bias uh, represented in mapped form um, I think we 've directly or indirectly we 've raised issues around humor um, uh, and maps, and I, and I think it might be interesting to kind of continue on that vein if we. If we can, that might be asking a lot of uh, a lot of us. Although I'm kind of reminded if if anyone's ever read um, Bruce Chatwin's in Patagonia, um, I think it's towards the end of which, where he's he's talking very emotionally, imaginatively with this uh, with this Welsh um, uh, lady in in, uh, in Welsh Patagonia and talking about Carnarvon, and she's clearly never been to Carnarvon, but she cites her whole family heritage as coming from Carnarvon, and, and, uh, and, and Bruce Chapman says to her, well, you know, can you put Carnarvon on a map? And she says, um, well, it would be difficult because it's on a tea towel. <laughs> and uh, I just sort of think, oh, well, that's the really the ultimate sort of vernacular, well, many, mm. of, the, many of the ultimate sort of vernacular uh, sort of maps, uh, sort of vague, functional uh, you know, in my, in my pocket sort of thing, but it's really up here. Um, it's not the physical object, it's, it's the sort of emotional uh, map that, uh, that many of us kind of walk around with, um, whether we're Welsh or, or otherwise, but perhaps particularly if we're Welsh, uh, we've also learned. Um, I think there are also issues clearly on both, uh, from both talks which we could open up to, um, you know, around technology, around new forms of data. Uh, of data capture, data storage, and data representation, and, and the things that we're interested in mapping uh, today, um, and that sort of jump from the map as a sort of a noun to to map as a sort of a verb, um, and, and how that sort of shifts the the register um, of what things become important to us, and the various representational forms of of maps that uh, that we have. So uh, at that, I will I, I will shut up and. Um, I will open the floor to questions, and I can spot one um, uh, here at the front. If you could say maybe who you are as well, and um, uh. I'm,
4: I'm, I'm a local resident. I just I live up the road. Um, I'm just very interested. I mean, it's wonderful, and you, I'm really blown away. I mean, I have a sort of quasi political interest in maps anyway, but you've you've really opened up what is a obviously a really deeply political art as well Mm -hmm. as an artistic art. And my question is twofold, really, or threefold even, perhaps. Um, I I like the idea of a projection, like you're projecting projecting something, but you're also sort of slightly projecting into the future. Mm -hmm. So we think of maps as maybe looking at the past or the now, but I'm I'm interested in kind of the idea of projection into the future. Um, For political reasons, and I think you touched on UKIP, um, and, and those wonderful political maps of, of um, you know, the, the voting intentions. But what I'm, what I'm interested, I've got one of those big Times maps of the world books, and it's really the pit that really fascinates me is the ancient maps, and the population movements um, to do with the Visigoth invasions. And my, I can't remember the dates, but an incredible map of population movements coming from the east. Um, the way people moved across the Franks came down into Spain and went into North Africa and came up again through Italy I knew nothing of this mm. and why it really interests me now is that I think we're going to start to see those kind of population movements in connection with climate change and I wondered if you know of anybody doing that kind of work where we're projecting <coughs> what is going to happen to the world, how our world is going to be reshaped by climate change places are going to be off the map mm. those the, the peaks in your little thing in your swimming pool in Venice are not going to be there anymore, no. certainly to be inhabited by us. Mm. So I'm interested in a political context. In a time when UKIP is on the march, we have all these stupid Daily Mail debates about you know the, the terror, the Romanian terror that is coming. You know we're, We've got real problems about where populations are going to be able to live. Yeah. And how is that going to be mapped? And how can we start creating those maps that are going to help us politically not to get into the kind of scrapes that are going to devolve into genocide, basically, mm. over territorial scraps and people not being allowed to migrate and whatever. Mm. You know, um, it's, it's about the economics of genocide, a lot of this. Mm. And how do we explain that to people? Um, sorry, it's a very long informed question. May I go on? I yeah.
0: can um, go on. You have the microphone, I can Okay. seem to find a way to grapple it from
4: so so that that i mean i've kind of i kind of wrapped up <coughs> two things there one is the idea of a future a projection into the future or you know which goes with the imaginative maps in literature of tolkien or you know a fake past or whatever or fake future maps in science fiction whatever but also this idea of the, that a map is essentially a political object right. and how do we use them now yeah at a time of global crisis yeah. of the kind of which we've not seen before yeah. in world history yeah. the second okay. thing is why, cool. is why is West never at the top
1: oh because okay. it's where the sun sets so basically ah. a, a lot of what I was talking about it, it is the way in which maps are basically also cosmogonies. so how does a culture ever understand its origins well it maps itself right so it creates maps so those early Greek maps you know, all cultures do that and what they do is they basically orientate themselves, usually according to some sort of basic ethnographic principle. And so all different pre-modern cultures can use north, east or south, but nobody uses west because west is where the sun sets and where death comes from. Go west, young man. Yeah? That's where you die. Right? Mm-hmm. So nobody's going to valorize the west, but they'll valorize all different cardinal points on the map. But I think you're right. I mean, I think that's surely a lot of what you're just saying is why we're so interested currently in mapping. Um, The map that you have, your Times Atlas, is utterly residual. Everybody is now, of course, moving online. And what kind of standard map are we using? You know, Mike's showing us the 19th century imperial Mercator maps. And that was, in a sense, how particularly people in the West were understanding their worldviews. Now, as we move online, we're not using paper maps. Only, if I may say, our generation onwards is still using those kind of atlases. Everybody else is moving online. I can't remember the last time I used a London A to Z map. And suddenly my wife came up to London. We didn't, she didn't come up with it. And she said, where's so-and-so? I'll ask the man behind the bar for an A to Z. I went, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I'll
5: have the end the phone, if
1: you yeah. do that. You know, they go, A to Z. Um, so th- that's happened suddenly in our generation. That shift has taken place. Hmm. And that's why I have you know, big reservations about what's happening with the online mapping. And obviously in terms of what Google and Apple are doing. Because as Mike's showing us, there is always an agenda to the map that we're being... Sold, in effect, and sold is now the operative word, and so we have to be really careful. A map is never right or left. A map is always about how we use it. You know, a map is never inherently you know of one ideological predisposition or another. As Mike's showing us, it's always about how people use them. So really, I'm not really offering any answers. I'm just simply saying, yeah, we have to be aware that we are not now in some great moment of online transparent mapping. You know, Mike's been showing that. I just give a glimpse of that. And so we need to be careful, because people like, you know, uh, Robert Kaplan has just written a book called The Revenge of Geography. Mm -hmm. And you're right, in geopolitics, the whole notion of geopolitics is invented right here in the early 20th century by Halford Mackinder. So Halford Mackinder, who formed the LSE, basically pretty much put geography on the academic discipline in the very late 19th century in Oxford. He moved here. He was a founder... Uh, founding father of the LSE, and he was responsible with other uh, particularly German uh, and uh, uh, American scholars for developing the field of geopolitics, which precisely, as it says, is about how you understand politics geographically. And, of course, you know, Mackinder's argument was, you know, you need to basically control the heartland of a geopolitical world which says Central and Eastern Europe, if you control that area, you can basically control everything from that, these kind of mad messianic Orwellian fantasies. Now, we know that American foreign policy is still driven by many of those principles. Okay? Um, and that geopolitical uh, advice was kind of wor- has worked all the way through post that sort of Cold War period that Mike was showing us and now people like robert kaplan are still saying that we need to understand you know pivots hinges the way in which a global geopolitical world map looks like and where do we control bits to, to basically develop empire and the final point is yeah i mean it's an open question how do you map those kind of flows you know, Now we talk a lot about global flows of capital and movement. That Mercator map I was showing you, you, know, you can see how trade is being moved around. Now it's about how can we do that in terms of instantaneous online forms of mapping that show flows of capital. Um, and that's really the challenge, I think, of a lot of map makers. I just hold up an example of somebody like Daniel Dawling. Danny Dawling is a wonderful progressive cartographer in Sheffield who's doing these fantastic Mm -hmm. cartograms and he's doing cartograms where he'll basically manipulate a, a world map and he'll say let's feed in data about the incidence of HIV globally and project that using that word project it onto your map and Rather like some of the maps Mike was showing, suddenly you get a world map which shows a massively distended sub-Saharan Africa and everything else, so Southeast Asia also. But basically, the developed world, you know, knowing hardly any incidence of HIV, and it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant piece of iconography, as you were saying, mm-hmm. because it immediately makes the impact. As you know, I work, I did HIV work in sub-Saharan Africa, and you'd use that kind of image because of the power that that map would give you. So I look at people like Danny Dawling and say, that's the way in which we should be working. And working with, all, uh, with open source mapping. Don't, u- don't use Google and, and Apple. Don't use them. You know, it's, it's up to us in terms of the kind of maps that we use. Only we make those maps. Hmm.
0: A, qu- a quick point, if I can come in. I mean, um, a couple of points, actually. The positioning of the West um, on, on the maps, um, I... I fully agree with your argument, I, I do wonder whether it's being a bit contested, at least in sort of a subtle way. Because emails I get, right, I know that I am sitting in my office at 3.05 mm. and I get an email. And it tells me, in fact, that that email has been sent Eastern Standard Time mm. um, from the West, from the United States seaboard. And so the timing of, of my information mm. flow, though I am sitting in GMT is now being determined by somewhere far to the west of me. And I mean it's not a not a kind of literal planed map here, but it's it's a it's a sort of map of information. You know, and I'm being moved out of my time space suddenly I'm working within a sort of technological time space. And I do wonder whether there's a bit of a technology is shifting us um, westward. It is, um, but that's it.
1: We're, we're, we're speaking here from a very privileged perspective. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I mean, absolutely. Then, you know, we, we then talk yeah. about the digital divide. You know, I, you know, the Google, the Goog, Google Earth, which I show you, know, one of the statistics I, I say is, it's been downloaded by half a billion people. Wow. Most, most, you know, the most popular world map dwarfs than the Cater map or the Peter's mm. projection. But then you say globally it's only half a billion people, and if you use one of Mike's maps to show where that penetration was, yeah, you'd see where that was. It's Europe, yeah. it's North America. So that penetration is still a real question. You know, I'm staggered by you show those Google maps, and as always, you say, how many people on that global map do not even know that they are being mapped? Have no even conception of internet penetration. Have no perception of that form of mapping, and yet they are being mapped.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think that's the the, the sort of the technology interface. Because at lunch today, I was talking (laughs) with somebody completely spontaneously. They said that their family is based in France. It's uh, one generation back. I'm saying that there's a, you know, I'm sure many of us have done this. Right, there there are online devices where you can tap in your family name. It's a bit trickier when it's Jones. But, um, and, and you can trace where your family has come from, and you can put in various parameters. Right? And so what he was saying is, is that part of his family comes from uh, Brittany, and part of his family comes from Alsace-Lorraine. And um, As you sort of clicked and clicked and clicked, so on his mother's side, his father's side, back sort of coming forward in the generations, you could see the family moving together until mm. you know, mother and father met in, I don't know, wherever... Uh, Lyon or somewhere uh, and you know it 's a very kind of nice passive form of, of mapping it 's very comfortable it 's very comforting um, to to do that, but the data that on which that is based and um, coming into the kind of the bias and the politics and the agendas i think to some extent overlapped in some of the more sort of geopolitical concerns here it, is kind of interesting because this point about do we know when and how we're being mapped? Those people didn't know that they were being mapped. They didn't know that those movements and family decisions would become kind of interesting and, and leisure pursuits a hundred or so years later. Today, with that sort of um, geopolitical agenda, um, I think there's some interesting things which debates like SARS um, produced. which showed biometric mapping, for example. When we go through an airport and we've got a biometric passport, it logs where we've been and where we've been to. And if we've picked up uh, diseases or we have cross-tabulation cross, uh, cross with epidemiological data, for example. And that's cross-tabulated, again, um, the British Passport Authority is, is using this um, sort of DHL, basically, sort of click and search technology. So like you can find out where your Amazon parcel is at any point between the Swansea Depot and your front door, That same technology, that same uh, point of sort of data sophistication is being used for people. Mm. So as soon as they knew that certain infections had come from Vancouver and Toronto, as it was, and had though people had previously been in Hong Kong, they could go and find out through the biometric mapping who else had been through Hong Kong and Vancouver, Toronto in the period of, of infection and immediately start to map out then where they were possibly within the UK. You know, I mean, it may be a kind of force for good, and one shouldn't sort of besmirch that, but it does open up possibilities about being tracking in the same way you can track a parcel you can now track a person
1: yeah, but it, that's again it's about appropriation of that geographical knowledge you know I, I, I did a lot of work with, with Google um, they let me in amazingly um, and because I said I'm, on your, I'm kind of on your side I think I like what you're doing and then actually over three years decided they were wrong and evil and I didn't <laughs> and now, now we don't we, now, now we don't talk it's very sad there was a terrible moment where I said this to the Royal geographical society there were 800 people and I said well Ed Parsons you know at Google and then the chair. Uh, there was a question. There was a, and she went, "Oh look, it said Parsons." <laughs> Absolutely destroyed me. It was so funny. And they, they still won't have the debate with me. What's really interesting that the end of the book says, "Look, this is the problem." Google stumbled onto geospatial applications, which is what they now call maps. So geospatial application. Um, it's not not not, not doesn't ring true, does it? A, from map to app. But you know they're now saying it's not. We're not making maps. We're making these things called geospatial applications. And they sort of stumbled on it. They just thought it was good. cool, it was a great kit. But just as you're describing, it's about now understanding about how they can monetize geography. So every time you know when you go and you do your searches, most of the searches... And they said this to me. They suddenly said, what we realised is that most searches that you put into a search engine have some component of geographical information. It's something like...
2: 85% yeah. or something.
1: and of course you realise, you know, you're just putting in a hotel in Madrid. You know, and even other stuff, you know, and now you'll see that the Google Place page comes up yeah. on your return. And that didn't happen up until a couple of years ago. So it's about the way in which they're basically saying, well, we can, we can, we can monetize that geographical information. And then precisely trace... Your movements, which is why the advertising starts popping up in the way that it does. And they stumbled on that. They realised that basically geography was integral to their search experience, and they hadn't really got that until really only about seven or eight years ago. So I think Google Earth is the sort of sfumato, It's what they show you, isn't it, groovy? And it, it responds to that irenic utopian. Isn't it fantastic to sort of zoom in and out to take that view up in space of well, it the is I earth? Mean, yeah. Yeah, it is. It is, but it's playing on. It's playing on the iconography of all that NASA. It's. they're basically they're taking it from the 1973 first whole Earth image, which some of you will remember. That grey image the that they blue took. Marble. The blue marble. The blue marble. You know, which was which kickstarted the environmental movement, and that's what Google did. And I love the fact because they call it Google Earth. Again, these terms that we're using, it's Earth. They didn't say Google World. It might be a little bit imperialistic. Yeah. Google Earth, so it's touchy feed, it's environmental, and, of course, that's partly what they're saying they're up to. But I think it's a complete con, because it just it lures you in, and you do that classic thing with the map. You go, let's zoom around the world. And, of course, what's the first thing you do? You type in your own address. Yeah. <laughs> Egocentric mapping. <laughs> you
0: know? Question down here at the front.
3: Yeah, thanks. Several related questions um, inspired by various comments you guys have made. Uh, first, um, there used to be an image of a map often associated with military or some kind of imperial ambition. You, know, you, you might see a general standing in front of a, a map, Napoleon, Hitler, and it's, it's, there's an ominous use of that, right? The, the sense of uh, the map is an abstraction that represents the, uh, the conquering ambition, you know, whether it be British or German or whatever, right, or Napoleon. So that's a very menine kind of use. Uh, we don't see that kind of representation as much anymore. The converse one is, uh, and you, you inspired me by, uh, by mentioning in Patagonia, I thought it actually started with a, with a geographic mapping reference. Because I thought um Chadwin mentioned um growing up in during the Cold War and look and turning to the map mm-hmm. and trying to find the place on the map that is the furthest place away from where he thought where most of us thought the uh, the Russian bombs would hit. <laughs> and he thought that was in Patagonia, so mm-hmm. I thought that was kind of interesting. So that was like kind of, kind of almost a, a flip side of that imaginative use of mapping. But then the lady actually, uh, I, I thought thinking about climate change because <coughs> I thought the one the one thing I really love is that project you're doing in hopefully the Biennale, uh, the Venice Biennale. Besides being artistic, it has a, this amazingly powerful educational political dimension. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think I don't know how many people, even in this day, where every year now we we see a new flood or see a new storm that suppose only hits every 100 years, uh, to see the Maldives and the coast of England and the coast of um, Holland and the coast of America submerging as you just slowly ooze in more water, that's got to have a um, powerful impact if it's done right. Yeah, but. We, no, we now don't associate uh, the use of Google Maps that way. We, we, we think of it as a very practical, mm-hmm. very benign, very user-friendly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it shows us all the shops that we like to go to. Was the nearest Waitrose? Was the nearest Tesco? Was the nearest uh, tube <coughs> station? What's interesting is that uh, it's practical and commercial, but only if it's actually commercial. I was recently, after reading uh, McFarlane's book, trying to track so I can do a walk along the Ridgeway. And it's actually very difficult on Google Map or any other map to do more than a few points on the Ridgeway because it is not commercial. It is in the middle, you know, it's... Mm. You could probably do it, but it's not easy to find yeah, but Mike, on, 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 yeah. on, a, on an electronic version of the map.
1: But Mike needs to talk about this, because you know yeah. what w- we should both be talking about yeah. also <laughs> is you know, the fact that you know, nobody's getting the, the fact that Google Maps and Apple Maps are basically <coughs> on a medium scale, because they're not interested in doing the kind of ordnance survey mapping. I mean, oh, you, you should talk about your road mapping stuff, because that's not what they're about. You know, An ordnance survey is stuck, sort of not really fully going online and not really knowing where it stands. And we are sleepwalking into a situation where we're privatising mapping again. You know, we've only spent 200 mm. years, under 200 years, with an ordnance survey system where the state basically constructs mapping and it assesses it and it referees it. Who's refereeing Google Maps? <coughs> and, of course, the conceit is it's kind of a m- marvellous capitalist move. It's said our users send us maps, so we're being completely interactive. Why don't trust those maps? Mm.
2: You know, so Ref- it sounds great. So. Yeah, I mean, there's... I mean, it's very interesting what you say there about the things that aren't. The things that we see immediately on the interface are. I mean, I remember there was a spat a few years ago between Google Maps and the British Cartographic Society. Um, 2008, I think it was. It was only in the first couple of years. And they were, Google Maps were bloody awful then. and they were really. You know, there was nothing of any kind of cultural interest on them. It was all just. Well, I remember the, the president of the British Cartographic Society describing them as the, the corporate blank wash. Mm. Uh, you know, and, and although they're better now. That they still are kind of corporate blackwash to a large extent, and on a bigger scale. Going back to your question, Madam, I mean, what you were saying, you know, the the, the this, you know, if you look at where where the, 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 the sort of the gaps on the map now are in the world, something. I mean, we're picking on Google. It's not just Google. It's all mm. the, the satellite mapping agencies, really. You know, um, you know, they're, they're, the, the detail you can get in the West and in the areas, say, of sub-Saharan Africa, where there's loads of gold or loads of diamonds. You know, this is where the mapping is being done. You know, it is not that different from, from the, the imperialists of 200 years ago going in there and mapping the dark continent, as they called it. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's more or less the same, um, same kind of thing. Um, I just wanted to pick up on what Jerry said about... Uh, oh, yeah, I'll just, I'll just do one last thing on, on the Google Map thing, because the book I'm just finishing off at the moment. Uh, it will be out in October, but I haven't actually finished writing it yet. Um, but I am in my last week. And I was just working yesterday on... <laughs> I spent the whole day yesterday on, on Google Maps and Google Street View looking at um, road, it writing about road pricing and tolls and, and all this kind of stuff. And I ended up wandering on Google Street View and Google Maps around Dulwich in South East London, I think. Mm. Gareth is there. But, well, uh, but not on one of the... Your street's map, I'm sure, is it. Yes. But what's, what struck me was how much of Dulwich is not on, you're not allowed to go down Google Street Maps because they're private roads. They're not just gated, there are quite a lot of gated ones, you definitely can't go down those. But quite a lot which weren't gated, and you can't go down those either. So, you know, you can, if you're rich enough, you can opt out even of a Google Map. Um, You can can refuse to have your, um, you know, your house shown on that as well. So, you know, it's it's kind of, there's so many issues that that it is bringing up. The two map things, the, the, the names you need to remember that I can think of off the top of my head. OpenStreetMap is is the one that I think uh, Jerry was, was talking about, which is a kind of um, they call it the Wikipedia of maps, which is a crap way of describing it. But you get the picture. It's, it's 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 open. It's free. It's accessible. It's reusable. It's there's no um, and it's really worth supporting. It's it's growing by the by the sort of day. And like, when there was that her- earthquake in Haiti uh, three years ago. Um, it was OpenStreetMap. We were in there straight away, um, mapping what had happened, uh, producing the stuff for the aid agencies and the NGOs. Um, and it, they were, you know, it was just phenomenal the work they did there. So there is a really explicit political and humanitarian element to, to their mapping as well. It's really, really worth knowing about. And I think one of the ones that Danny Dawling and Benjamin Henning, uh, I mean their stuff I think one of them is called London Mapper. Is that right? Yeah. Mm. If you Google London Mapper, you'll find that sort of stuff, and it'll lead you, link you to other ones as well. And those, those are a way they kind of crunch the geography with the information, and you get these. I'm sure you've all seen them, I mean, the ones that Jerry was talking about, but they, they, they can present uh, so, if, information in such an effective way. I mean, it is so immediate uh, and quite startling sometimes as well. Uh, so, London Mapper and OpenStreetMap are an open map of the money. But you know, we've got to
1: remember just a real quick point this stuff costs money. Google has ploughed hundreds of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars into the satellite data which makes those maps. So it's very difficult for these kind of open source companies to, to, to keep that going. They, oh, yeah. you know, they just can't. That's why Apple was so crap. Apple could simply, just aside, I mean, they simply couldn't put that kind of money in that Google had been pouring into buying up commercially available data. You can go and buy it. It's basically all from usually from uh, NASA satellite payloads. But it's then commercially available. But that's what they do. They just buy up that data and then they crunch it, and that's how they create the maps. So we still we've got this other problem, you know, in terms of who has access to that kind of data. So we use these maps, and they're great. But you know, there's a point now you where know, Google pulls the plug and says you can only use them if you pay a subscription, and that is the move that's happening. Yeah. And that is a big shift. We haven't had that before. Well, I mean, you could say, hey, you buy your ordnance Survey amount, it's two fifty or it's <laughs> a five. You know. That is a different. <coughs> Thing that's happening, and that is a real issue, it seems to yeah. me. I'm,
0: but, sorry, I was going to say what you've got there, though, is I mean, in you know, sort of jargon, you know, a map is a sort of technology of power in a sense. And what you've got at the Dulwich end of the spectrum, right, is, it, it is the power to opt out of being globally mapped, mm-hmm. certainly in the street view sense. Mm-hmm. So, property value or kidnap threat or, or whatever it is in other parts of the world says, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm worth too much to be mapped. And yeah. you know, We talked about this a bit before, but it's the other end of the spectrum is, I'm not worth enough to be mapped. Yes. And I mean, we were t- we were talking we were talking. Yeah, I can't remember about about, about Cape Town there mm. and going out on the N2 w- uh, freeway out and on, on on Street View, and you can see the off ramps on the road that you're you're going along as your little man pointing in that direction, and you can't come off the freeway. You can't go down into Mitchell's Plain and into Kyalichta and so on mm. and so forth. Google doesn't take you there. It doesn't want to take you there. It's Six hundred thousand people, mm-hmm. and th- so th- there is no Google market. Mm-hmm. Why do they want to take you there? Why would you want to go there mm-hmm. in a Google world? Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's no market there. You, there's nothing to buy, mm-hmm. um, so and, or nothing to be sold, sold to <laughs> you. So, you know, it's an interesting sort of being crunched in the middle. Mm-hmm. I think. Sorry.
4: Question? Hi, I I use. Google maps and ordnance survey maps digitally in my work every day to look at road junctions. And my biggest, biggest problem with Google is it simply isn't accurate. It doesn't name things. Mm. It just doesn't, you know, if it it is of no value, Mm. it doesn't actually give a name to where this road Mm. intersects with this road. And it's virtually useless.
1: Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, well, I mean, again, because their agenda is different, you know, we have, as, as you're saying, you know, we have a certain notion of a scalable map, which is the Ordnance Survey, and that's what we work with. Um, And as that becomes residual, the question is, yeah... Google knows. Google's sitting there saying, "We're going to end up paying." I mean, that, you know, it's a similar thing with the argument about books. Google Books, you know, great resource, but then when you want to read the eighth chapter, that is, de- you know, you can't get it because they're moving to a pay per view move, and that's what's happening. And you know, oh, I keep always saying, it. "I am an old lefty," so I would say this. But what's interesting is that the entrepreneurs, the online entrepreneurs, kept saying this to me. Their concern is this: they say, you know, "Google and Apple are just killing." competition because they've, they've just poured so much money into it. And that's their problem. They're, they're not people who are on the left. They're just saying, we are trying to do online business, and we, we just cannot get into that market because they've, s- they've just locked it down.
0: Mm. So question in the middle.
1: middle.
6: And then the um, I'm with information systems upstairs, but I've been doing some research with, uh, with the World Bank, and they're very much into online interactive mapping particularly in developing countries. And I was just wondering what your thoughts would be on, do maps raise, does interactive mapping raise too many expectations? So for example, you mentioned the case of Haiti. So the NGOs were plotting where aid was needed, but they didn't actually get there, but there were expectations that something would be done or fix my street in the UK. Um, mm-hmm. or there is something called Map Kibera, which is to map uh, the um, informal settlement in Nairobi. Sorry, I can't
2: quite hear Sorry. you. Sorry. Uh,
6: so basically, is interactive mapping raising too many expectations about who's actually going to fix the problem, or is it just enough that we get the information out there, what you referred to in terms of inter- uh, open data, you're talking about open data. Well, I think in the
2: example of Haiti, uh, i remember talking to Steve uh, Chisholm from um, OpenStreetMap, and, and then... It was a question of just kind of getting the information out there, you know, and also mapping the damage. I you mean, know, that, that made a huge difference, you know, because so there were whole areas of the town that were no longer navigable and streets that were no longer there, you know, all this kind of stuff. So, I mean, that, that had a really immediate... Kind of thing. But thing. I think your, your point about is it raising... Is, is a lot of interactive mapping raising too many expectations? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and the wrong expectations as well, I think, to some extent as well. I mean, people... You know, and it's part of the same thing. It's part of the the idea which we, we've been showing throughout the whole of history, where we have been led to believe that it's all quite benign and it's all, you know, it's all just a statement of, of, of the lie of the land. It's that's all a map is. Well, it never is, and it never has been, and it never will be. You know? And
1: it, absolutely, I mean, I agree completely. And of course. That this, again, why we are all fascinated by maps, we, do, with this, we invest something very, very powerful in maps, almost sort of magical. This, we want it to give us something back. You know, I keep saying, you know, the map also asks, answers that very existential question. You know, the big one, of course, is who am I? You know, I teach Shakespeare this morning, I'm doing Hamlet. Who am I? But the map asks the question, where am I? Yeah? And, and it always wants to, to give you an answer, which is why I think we keep saying you know, the map centers you in a certain way, it locates you. So it is related to a sense of your identity. And we always wanted that map to, to give us that because it locates us in a certain way. Where are you? you, know, people, you know, psychologists will talk about the way in which that cognitive mapping takes place very early. You define and differentiate yourself from the rest of the world you know, through mapping, through understanding your, your spatial environment. And from then on, I think, yeah, you, do, you give the map this sort of great power. You invest it with some sort of symbolic status, which, as Mike's saying, often doesn't sort of measure up to that. But I'd return to your point, you know, about the iconography and saying the statesman stood in front of the map. We've always historically teetered on this move between the map, which shows the whole world, which yes can be a positive, environmental, you know, philosophical uh, image. Uh, you know, I always say it's a great stoic image. Map rise above the earth and they look down, and the world always looks better and more benign from eight thousand kilometres up. Know, yes. but it's a classic, it's a Greco Roman Stoic belief, you know, the ills of the world look very small when you're up there. So there's always that utopian dimension of mapping, and it can always be appropriated by your statesman standing in front of the map. You know, it's it's the ultimate totalitarian move to say, I own that. Yeah? Yes. And and we're always we're always in a push and pull with mapping between those two imperatives, rather as Gareth was just saying. There's a question there.
5: It's sort of been answered a bit by, by some of the things you've been talking about already, but um, I wanted to go back, uh, Jerry, Sorry to your... To speak up again? I'm already dead. Is this? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Just to go back to the point at the start in your lecture um, when you mentioned uh, this tension in the discipline or this lack of discipline or this defining of the discipline of cartography uh, coming, of course, from p- perhaps being one of the ancient... Uh, Or oldest uh, multidisciplinary disciplines Mm. and also then having some clear geopolitical uh, uh, utility in the 20th century. Geographers Mm. often from uh, departments like the LSE Mm. get recruited by all sorts of Mm. agencies uh, at state level and beyond. Uh, And I'm sure uh, as as Google seems to have been the uh, interesting sort of direction and consumerism seems to be the direction of our lecture, I wanted to sort of bring it back into looking at that, that tension. I'm not a geographer, I come from a literature background and I find myself working at the Treasury. And I thought, um, I thought it was quite interesting to see how uh, we were looking at language earlier, projection, the map, to map, um, surveillance, we seem to be skirting around the survey. Uh, and I was thinking then of the economic model and how we model things as a projection perhaps, um, and how we map things, and perhaps the, that tension between the rationality and the, and the unknowability. But but back to the the idea of, of young geographers at the LSE being recruited by uh, and being in hot demand by, um, by governments and, and Google. Uh, wh- 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 where are we going with these creative ideas about what maps can do and, and all those economists and geographers who get brought up by the city and, by, and, and hired by NASA and, and the MOD. Well, I mean, where do, how do you how do bring this, this discussion into classrooms? I'm very curious because I, I, I was not taught uh, geography. I how how, we bring it into how do it you bring it, it into it classrooms, classrooms. You bring, and, 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 and affect, affect the, the people who have the power to perhaps change, change some of these things, as opposed to it being just a coffee table conversation? You see what I mean? Do you think that's happening?
1: Well, it's partly because geography has certainly gone through, and I think it's still going through, its own crisis, because precisely in the late 20th century, all those uh, propaganda maps that Mike was showing, in a sense it it became a victim of its own success because it was so appropriated by political ideologies of all forms, and, and geography went with that and then realised that it actually had to pull back. So, like literature, it went through a crisis, but really more in the 90s, about saying what was its political and ideological status. So I was a literary uh, research student in, in the late 80s, early 90s, Loving going to geographers because geographers were so having a nervous breakdown about their own discipline that they loved anybody who wanted to come and talk to them about that. Um, and Mr. We're Mr. still Mr. having a nervous <laughs> breakdown. <Are you> <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're just, break. just better, better, at at line, we're better at hiding, at hiding it, it now. So, so I think it's, it's a real question because certainly with mapping, um, one of the things I talk about in the book is that you know, throughout the 80s, geographers like the wonderful late great uh, Brian Harley, who worked at the Ordnance Survey, and then he basically, then he read Michel Foucault, the post-structuralist philosopher, and he suddenly changed tack completely, and he said, maps are about instruments of power and ideology, and all the Ordnance Survey had its own nervous breakdown, and he Brian, what's gone wrong? But he did, he wrote these sensational pieces, that the whole discipline just went, oh my God, and it threw just everything up in the air, and we're still dealing with the consequence of that, because uh, people like Harley, because he was so embedded within the discipline, took it took it through that post-structuralist route very quickly. And now geographers and mapmakers are going, oh, we, now, what do we do now? And I think both Mike and I are saying, let's get away from the maps are brutal instruments of ideological, you know, propagation. Maps are more now, I think, the, the theoretical argument. A map is, is a proposition. It's a projection. It's offering you a certain way of thinking about the world. Do you want to believe it or not? Right? And, and so I think now we're more in that slightly creative space. It offers—it's an argument. A map is an argument. It's a proposition, and that's where we now sit. D- does that, that the you thing? Well, yeah, I think it has to because I think it we have, hmm. we have to because we, you can't just say all maps are always already wrong and evil and are not the territory. And you know we are moving. You can hear us both moving away from that. Yes, be sceptical about the map, but say as you were saying about your own use of maps be realistic about it, but say, yeah, what agenda will they always come with? What expectations do you have of the map? And I think that that's where you go with it. But it's the beginning of a discussion. That's why suddenly everybody's going, maps? Yeah, what are they want?
5: But all that training and, and the geographers that end up working for commodities companies in, in I don't know, the north of Canada, or, you know, map, mapping our resources, and if that's the next challenge for, our, our, for humanity of for this century, is resources and the fight of land and resources. Geographers are right there in it. What, how, do, how do you make young geographers interested in these ideas as opposed to the practical application of their discipline? Just like economists, just like. <laughs> <laughs> I'm
0: just really curious because I think it's fantastic to have these discussions. I'd... Um, I'm not sure this is going to answer your question <laughs> at all. Um, but at one point uh, when Jerry was talking, I. I I was sort of thinking two points, and I'll try and bring them together. One is it, I think it does depend who is doing the mapping and what, what it is they're mapping, I suppose, with what they're mapping and what data. Um, and I think there, there is, isn't there a kind of potential for a kind of subversive mapping exercise? Um, there are moments when maps have been quite subversive, and, and I think that potential is still there. Um, and then the point you made about bringing that into the classroom or into different arenas, I think, pedagogically and otherwise. Um, yeah, events lead the charge, in a sense. There are a number of British supermarkets which, wish, unless they're hiding it, wish they had better maps of their commodity chains right now so that they could demonstrate where the stuff has come from. Um, and who and what was involved in the processes in between. The irony is, is that some subversive mapping is actually very good at, at that sort of material and dealing with those kind of ideas. And the example I have off the top of my head, but I can't remember who's done it, um, is uh, <coughs> that there was a sort of mapping exercise of uh, flip-flops, the Hawaiian Brazilian flip-flops, etc. Right? They retail in New York.